Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, the novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she hid millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where, but that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 3 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation. Chapter 4 The room was small and dimly lit by candles placed at random throughout. In the middle of the chamber was a round table, surrounded by four upholstered antique chairs. Soothing, atonal music played. Sitting in the largest chair was Harmony Fortuna, a heavyset woman with pure white hair. She wore a generous amount of makeup. Her ears were pierced from the lobe all the way up to the top, and she had layers of chains draped around her ample neck. Eleanor Rainey sat to her left, smiling nervously. She was plainly dressed, but her hair was immaculate, straight from the hairdresser, as if she wanted to make sure she looked her best. Jennifer sat opposite Nate's mother. She checked her phone. Anything from Nate? Eleanor asked. No, but I'm sure he'll be here any minute. Harmony seemed unperturbed by the delay as she sat with her eyes closed. She had told Eleanor that it would be an extra charge to have more people at the session, and the woman had eagerly agreed, so she didn't mind if one of the party was a few minutes late. The bell on the front door tinkled. Hello, Nate called from the other room. Back here, dear, Eleanor called back. A moment later, Nate parted the beaded curtain that separated the two rooms. Eleanor smiled at him. Jennifer gave him a look that conveyed just how lucky he was that he made it there in time. Come, sit here. Eleanor said, waving at the empty chair opposite Harmony. Sorry I'm late, he said, but offered no further explanation. He looked around the room, seeing all the cliched trappings of a sideshow fortune teller. Seriously, he whispered to Jennifer. I know it's a little kitschy, but some mediums find it helps set a mood that their clients expect, she whispered back. Well, I already know what I expect, he replied. Harmony opened her eyes. Are we all ready? she asked in a deep, soft voice. I'm ready, answered Eleanor, who closed her eyes, tilted her head back slightly, and took a deep breath of the incense-filled air. Yes, added Jennifer. She had promised Nate she would watch for any signs of deception, but encouraged Nate to keep his mind open to the possibility that many mediums did actually communicate with the deceased. At the very least, she extracted a promise that he would be respectful. She shot an expectant look toward Nate. Nate took a deep breath, swallowing the sarcastic comment he wanted to utter. He glanced at his mother. 
who looked like she was meditating. I'm good to go, he finally said. Jennifer gave him a steely glance, warning him to behave. Harmony placed her thick arms on the table, reaching toward Eleanor and Jennifer with her palms up. Let's join hands and complete the circle, she said. The two women each placed their hands in harmonies, then reached out to Nate. Nate sat up straight and took their hands, suppressing his annoyance at having to participate in the absurd ritual. Harmony took in a deep breath. Please close your eyes. Eleanor already had hers closed, an obvious veteran of the experience, and Jennifer joined her. Nate kept his eyes open until Jennifer peeked to check on him. He rolled his eyes, then closed them. Harmony began moaning in a soft, melodic tone. We call upon the spirit of Benjamin Rainey, beloved husband of Eleanor, devoted father of Nathaniel. Your family wishes to hear from you, Ben. If you're here, please make your presence known. As Harmony moaned, a gust of cold wind passed over them. Eleanor shivered and smiled. Nate shook his head. Jennifer listened for the telltale sound of a fan spinning, but the music obscured any ambient sounds. Is that you, Ben? Harmony asked. A tinny bell rang. Oh, Ben, my darling, Eleanor said, smiling even broader. I can feel him. He is with us. The medium paused for a moment as if listening to a voice only she could hear. He wants to know. He senses conflict. It's making it hard for him to... Ben... Stay with us. Ben, Eleanor pleaded. I'm here, and so is Nate. He doesn't believe you can speak with us, but if you talk to him, I know you can convince him. We both miss you so much. Harmony sighed and moaned. Eleanor squeezed Nate's hand. Tell him, Nate. Tell your father that you love him. Nate paused before responding, remembering Jennifer's advice to at least accept that his mother believed she was talking to his father. Hi, Dad, he said, then added, How are you doing? Eleanor's grip on Nate's hand relaxed. Jennifer gave his other hand an appreciative squeeze. Harmony's moans subsided. He wants you to know that he's been watching over you, she said. He's glad that you... that you didn't join him in crossing over. It wasn't your time. Does that mean anything to you? Oh, yes, Eleanor said excitedly. Nate was shot on duty. We nearly lost him. Ah, Harmony said, pleased. I can sense that in his aura. Or you can read a newspaper, Nate added snidely under his breath. Stop it, Jennifer warned him in a whisper. Eleanor ignored the comments. Ben, please talk to your son. Convince him. Suddenly, the table wobbled. Harmony sucked in a breath. Oh, my, Eleanor exclaimed. Ben, is that you? The table slowly rose a few inches, then sort of hovered in place as if it was a raft resting in a pool of water. Oh, Ben, thank you, Eleanor said. She opened her eyes and looked over at her son. Nate took his hands back and bent over, lifting the cloth that was draped over the table to peer underneath. Mr. Rainey, please don't break the circle, Harmony cried. The table sank back down to the floor. What do you have under there? Nate asked. A couple of switches under the rug you press with your feet? To blast the cold air, ring the bell, and raise the table? I've seen better magic shows at kids' birthday parties. Harmony sighed and sank back in her chair. Her head collapsed forward, her chin on her chest. He's gone. I'm sorry, Eleanor. I tried to hold on. I know you did, dear, Eleanor said consolingly. 
Oh, come on, Nate pleaded. He turned to Jennifer. Don't you have anything to say? I know you didn't fall for this Vegas lounge act. You are too smart for that. This is not the way I wanted to handle this, Nate, Jennifer replied. I'm afraid all of this negative energy is driving away the spirits. I don't think we'll hear from Ben or anyone else today. Harmony turned to Eleanor. I need to go lie down. I'm sorry, but I have to ask you all to leave. She reached into a pocket and pulled out a collection of $20 bills folded up together. Here, you should have this back. She offered the money to Eleanor. Eleanor pushed it away. Oh no, dear. It wasn't your fault. You keep it. Thank you for trying. Oh, for goodness sake, Mom, take the money, Nate said. Eleanor looked to her son reproachfully. You promised you wouldn't misbehave, she said to him. I'm very disappointed. Those words shut Nate up. He had agreed to sit through the whole thing, allow Jennifer to do a complete evaluation and consider her opinion. And he had broken that promise. I'm sorry, Mom, but I couldn't just sit there. I'm not the one you need to apologize to, Eleanor admonished. Nate looked at his mother. Eleanor nodded toward Harmony, who sat back in her chair expectantly. He shifted his gaze to Jennifer, who offered no support. Forget it, Nate said. I can't believe you two are so gullible, but I'm not playing along with this charade. He looked at Harmony. You're a fraud. My mother may not believe it, and Dr. Day may not want to say it out loud, but you're a fake, phony huckster, and I have nothing to apologize for. Harmony's eyes started to tear. Her mouth turned down into a frown, and she started to shake with sobs. Great, now the waterworks start, Nate added. I think you should go, Eleanor said to her son, while reaching out a comforting hand to Harmony's shoulder. She looked to Jennifer. Dr. Day, would you be able to give me a ride home? Jennifer cast an I-told-you-so glance at Nate, then smiled to the elderly woman. Of course. Nate shook his head. He pushed his chair back, stood up, and exited through the beaded curtain. Why can't he see that his father is trying to reach out to him? Eleanor asked Jennifer. Jennifer shrugged. I know he can be stubborn, but he's just looking out for you. Eleanor sighed. I just want him to be able to talk to Ben like I do. Maybe it's not something he wants. Jennifer offered. But why wouldn't he? Maybe you should ask him. Chapter 5 Nate entered his house, still furious over how he had somehow become the bad guy, when all he was doing was trying to prevent his mother from getting conned by a sideshow palm reader. The room was filled with the sounds of warfare. Machine gun rounds and grenade explosions emanated from the television. Sitting across from it were two college-age kids. Emily sat with her legs folded under her, hunched over a video game controller, staring unblinkingly at the screen. The young man sitting next to her, Bits, exuded nerd. He was skinny and always seemed to be suffering from one skin condition or another. Bits wasn't a student, as far as anyone could tell. He was Dr. Day's tech guy, and built and maintained the equipment she used in her investigations. Judging from the expression on his face, the virtual battle he was in with Emily was not going in his favor. This is not a dorm room, you two, Nate said over the din. There was no response. Madge trotted into the room, sat at Nate's feet, and whined pleadingly. Nate looked down at the poodle and glowered. Shut up, dog, he said harshly. Madge bowed her head, then trotted off to a nearby corner. She curled up into a furry ball and closed her eyes. Nate returned his attention to the gamers on his couch. Can you guys take that somewhere else? This is my home, not an arcade. 
Almost done, Emily responded in a dispassionate monotone. There was a big explosion on the television. Bates threw up his arms in exasperation. You were so lucky, he said defensively. If by lucky you mean superior to you in every way, then yes, I was lucky, Emily responded. Rematch, Bits said, pressing buttons on his controller. No match, Nate said as he turned off the television. You guys have your own rooms. Why do you need to invade my space? We're taking a break, Bits explained. I thought this was like a common area, Emily offered. You never made a big deal about it before. Yeah, well, from now on the living room is off limits, Nate declared. Fine, no problem. We'll make sure to stay off your lawn, too, Emily added sarcastically. She and Bits tossed their game controllers onto the coffee table and slunk out of the living room, heading up the stairs to the bedrooms that had been converted into offices for them. Previously, they had been using space provided by the university, but Dr. Day's ongoing conflict with the dean had gotten them kicked out of the department offices despite her tenure. Two of the most recent were a basement and a gymnasium equipment room, so it wasn't too much of a loss. Madge lifted her head from her corner exile, emitting a soft whine. Not now, Madge. I'm not in the mood, Nate admonished. The dog rested her chin on her paws and watched as Nate crossed over to the couch and inspected the empty wrappers stuck between the cushions and the crumbs covering them. He brushed some away. He cringed as the motion caused a pain deep in his shoulder, a reminder of the gunshot wound that cut short his career. He had been on his way toward recovery, but then one rainy night on top of an apartment building roof, he had aggravated the injury during a confrontation with an octogenarian serial killer. In the struggle to save himself and Jennifer, he had torn muscles and detached ligaments, kicking off a whole new round of surgeries. Weeks earlier, he had finally shed the sling his arm had been cradled in for months, and even though he religiously followed the instructions of his physical therapist, his range of motion and strength were still greatly diminished. If he slept on it wrong, the next day he would have constant pain. Nate reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out a prescription bottle. He opened it and tapped two pills into his palm, tossed them to the back of his throat, and swallowed them dry. Careful, you don't want to get hooked on those things, Emily warned from the base of the stairway. Thanks for the unsolicited advice, Nate replied dismissively. Emily walked over and grabbed the notebook she had left behind on an end table. You should be tapering off those by now. She added. When did you get your medical degree? Nate asked with a smirk. The day I found my cousin dead in his bed from a fentanyl overdose, she replied. Nate turned away, hiding his embarrassment. But he wasn't in the mood to be lectured by some college kid. I'm fine, he assured her. And I'd appreciate you keeping out of my personal business as well as my living room. Emily shrugged, then turned around and went upstairs. Nate closed his eyes. This day was not getting any better. He took a deep breath, trying to let go of his stress. After a moment, the pain started to ebb, and his head cleared. He went to the kitchen. At the counter, Dave put a sandwich on a plate, then started to carry it toward the office. Nate cleared his throat. Dave turned around, looked at Nate, then followed the detective's gaze to the mess he had left behind. Sorry, Dave said. He put the sandwich down and started closing up the various bags and containers he had opened. If you can't keep this place clean, I'm going to revoke your kitchen privileges, Nate warned. I know, you're right, I don't usually leave a mess, but Dr. Day wanted me to file a grant proposal that's due in, he checked his watch, less than three hours. A grant proposal? I hope it's enough to cover our expenses. Well, it's supposed to be used exclusively for field work, so I'm not sure it would apply, 
Dave explained nervously. Maybe you'd be more useful finding his clients who can actually pay, Nate countered. I'm trying, Dave said. He carried an armful of sandwich fixings to the refrigerator and put them away. But Dr. Day is always more interested in the other kind. The kind where the people are broke and we end up losing money? Nate asked rhetorically. Dave shrugged and put away the last of the sandwich supplies. I'm trying to take to Rainey, but you know Dr. Day. Nate nodded. What about Dr. Day? Jennifer asked from the passage to the living room. Madge was at her side, excitedly wagging her tail as Jennifer scratched behind her ears. You need to have a word with your staff about respecting my home, Nate said to her. Jennifer looked to Dave, who shrugged. My staff? What's wrong? She asked Nate. Are you still upset about... Why do you assume this is all about me? Your kids are making a mess of my home. I can't walk around this place without tripping over someone's backpack or a box of photos or that damn dog. Madge is your dog, Jennifer pointed out. That's not the point, Nate countered. What is the point? This is not how things were supposed to be, Nate said. His eyes were wide with anger and frustration. We're not taking in any money. There are messes everywhere. People come and go at all hours, seven days a week. And when I ask you for one thing, one little thing, tell my mother that the psychic scammers she's giving all her money to are ripping her off. You can't even do that. Jennifer paused to let Nate cool down. I agreed to assess Harmony and give Eleanor my professional opinion. You were the one who interrupted the seance before I could do it, she pointed out calmly. Come on. You know all that stuff with the cold breeze and the rising table were just parlor tricks. Agreed, Jennifer replied. But sometimes genuine psychics add a little showmanship if they think their clients expect it. But that doesn't exclude them from having a legitimate connection to the consciousness of those who have passed. Nate rolled his eyes. Fine, I give up. You and my mother can go on talking to my dead dad. I wash my hands of the whole thing. He turned to Dave. Find us a client who can pay. That's what you're here for. Do your job. Nate opened the fridge, pulled out a bottle of beer, and twisted off the cap. He felt a twinge as the effort reawakened the pain in his shoulder. He took a swig and waited, daring anyone to say something. When no one did, he strode out of the kitchen and headed upstairs to his room. Madge nuzzled against Dr. Day's leg. Jennifer kneeled down and scratched the dog's muzzle with both hands. Don't worry, girl. You'll be okay. Sounds like the seance didn't go well, Dave said. Nate's got a lot on his mind, and he's not the type of man who likes to talk about his feelings or share his burdens. But he does have a point. Do we have any potential paying clients? She asked. I don't know. I've been working on the grant proposal. Forget about that. Start going through our inbox and see if you can find something, anything, so at least he doesn't need to worry about the bills. Come on, I'll help. Jennifer led the way to the office. Dave and Madge dutifully followed. Chapter 6 Greg and Marcia Foreman loved their old Victorian farmhouse. They had picked it up for a song considering how close it was located to San Francisco. It was a bit of a fixer-upper. The previous owner had done very little to update it, and there were rumors in town that a woman had died in the house. But Marcia was in love with its idyllic and isolated setting. There were woods right outside the back door for the kids to play in, like she remembered doing as a child. Despite its condition and history, it was worth the effort. They had gutted the kitchen and bathrooms to update the plumbing and most of the electrical. As much as Marcia liked the rustic exterior, she absolutely needed a modern kitchen and bathrooms. 
The rest of the house needed some rehab as well. She and Greg had stripped the walnut trim and molding to the bare wood, steamed off the multiple layers of wallpaper, and tore out the musty carpeting. Luckily, most of the original flooring was still intact and just needed to be refinished. The exterior of the house was Marcia's pride and joy. After scraping off all the loose paint, she put a fresh coat on the wood siding, the ornate balustrades, and the hand-carved pieces adorning the gables and eaves. She used a colorful eclectic palette, and you couldn't help but notice the house as you drove by. Greg had spent the spring planting a flower garden in front of the wide porch. He found some perennials that complemented the colors Marcia had picked out. Their blooms were fragrant and beautiful. It had taken them over a year to complete all the work, but it paid off. They had made a home. Greg worked in town managing the local warehouse store. Marcia worked from home doing web development. They had two children, Danny, who was ten and loved to read and draw, and Daisy, who was six and idolized her brother, but most of the time preferred to play with the dollhouse her father had built that was a scale model of their home. It was a typical morning in the foreman household. Greg and Marcia shared the chores of cleaning up after breakfast, cereal with fruit today, and packing lunches for the kids and Greg. Marcia checked her watch. You need to get going soon. Where are the kids? Probably playing. Do you really expect them to be standing at attention by the front door waiting to go to school? Greg asked playfully. She sighed. Oh, Mom can dream, can't she? Greg smiled. I'll finish here. You go wrangle the kids. Marcia gave him a peck on the cheek then went off in search of the children. Just to make sure, she checked by the front door to see if they were perhaps standing there, waiting patiently with their book bags and their clothes all properly buttoned and zipped they weren't. She continued on through the living room and up the stairs to the second floor where the bedrooms were. There were four of them, a reasonably sized master bedroom for Marcia and Greg, smaller rooms for the kids, and an extra they had set up as a guest room. Marcia went to Daisy's room first. The little girl was kneeling in front of the dollhouse, posing her dolls, some of whom were far too big for the tiny structure, and providing the voices for a conversation in which they were all exchanging compliments about how lovely they looked today. Marcia paused to watch her daughter at play. Daisy had a rich imagination, a trait both kids inherited from their mother. Miss Violet, wherever did you get that wonderful hat? Daisy asked in what sounded like a southern accent. Oh, this old thing? She replied with a bit of an English lilt. Thank you, that's very kind. Daisy, Marcia said, interrupting. Time to go. Do you have your things together? The little girl, wearing a gingham dress and long white stockings, looked up at her mother and nodded. Uh-huh. She stood up and grabbed her frozen-themed Disney backpack off the bed and rushed past her mom down the stairs. Marcia continued on to Danny's room. The door was ajar. She pushed it open, expecting to see him reading on his bed or at his desk drawing some fantastical alien monster. But he wasn't there. Danny? she asked, wondering if he was hiding from her under the bed or in his closet. Time for school, she said. There was no answer. She exited the room and checked the upstairs bathroom. He wasn't there either. Danny, she called out. Again, no answer. Leaning over the banister, she called downstairs. Daisy, is your brother down there? Nope, her daughter answered. Marcia was going to head down the stairs to check for herself when she noticed the door to the guest room at the end of the hall was open partway. As she approached, she could hear her son engaged in a one-sided conversation. Danny? she asked softly. He either didn't hear Marcia or was ignoring her. Marcia pushed the door open and peeked inside. The guest room was the one room in the house that hadn't gotten a modern makeover. 
Marcia wanted to keep it close to the original. She even found an antique wallpaper to decorate the walls, and the carpeting had been ripped up and replaced by a large area rug. Danny was perched on one corner of the four-poster bed. His feet dangled off the edge. He was staring at a rocking chair in the corner of the room. She's okay for a little sister, he said, answering a question Marcia didn't hear. Danny continued. Kind of, but I'd have to share my toys with a brother, so having a sister is okay. Marcia stepped into the room. Danny, time to leave for school. Danny looked at his mother and hopped off the bed. Okay. Then he turned to the rocking chair. I have to go to school now. I'll see you later. Then he walked out of the room, squeezing past his mother as if nothing unusual had happened. An imaginary friend? Marcia wondered to herself. She followed Danny to his room and watched as he stuffed books and notepads from his desk into his backpack. Who are you talking to? she asked. Without looking at her, Danny answered, Maureen. Is Maureen a friend from school? No, she's an old lady, like you. She says she used to live here. We're friends, he said, then slung his backpack over his shoulders and squeezed by her once again on his way downstairs. Marcia took a moment to absorb what Danny had told her. First of all, she wasn't old, but a not-quite-middle-aged woman was still an odd choice for an imaginary friend. We're off, Greg called from downstairs. Marcia left Danny's room and hurried down the stairs to wish them all a good day. Greg and the kids headed for the minivan as Marcia watched them go from the front door. Once they disappeared down the street, she closed the door and looked back upstairs, wondering if she should be concerned about Danny. She brushed the thought aside and turned her attention to the backlog of work piled up on her desk. Chapter 7 The quarterly Department of Anthropology meeting was held in a medium-sized lecture hall, even though the number of instructors and administrators present was far below the room's capacity. Jennifer sat a few rows back on the aisle. She had the meeting agenda in her hands and was obviously angry. The specific topic she had submitted was not on the list of new business. To be honest, she hadn't expected it to be considering her strained relationship with the dean, but it still stung. They had been hired as young adjunct professors at the same time. She went on to earn her tenure as a full professor. He became an administrator. Along the way, his disdain for her pursuits in the field of the paranormal grew, and he weaponized any media attention that tied her ghost-hunting to the university against her. Dr. Day remained silent throughout the meeting, but stared directly at the dean as he ran the proceedings from the dais. Whenever he would look up at the audience, if he met her glare, he would quickly look away. The meeting proceeded through old business, updates on university policies, and then on to new business. When the published agenda had been exhausted, the dean asked perfunctorily if there were any other new business. Jennifer stood up. Yes, there is. I have a new course I propose for the fall semester that is missing from the agenda, she said, holding up the stapled papers. I don't believe all the requisite forms have been submitted, the dean replied, shutting down her complaint. If there is no other new business, the chair moves... Oh, they've been submitted. Jennifer picked up a thick folder from the seat next to her. I have all the required documentation, along with all the requisite confirmations and signatures. I jumped through all your hoops, dotted all my I's, and crossed all my T's. I even submitted a list of over 100 students who are interested in taking the course. And which course would this be? The dean asked, making a show of shuffling through the papers scattered in front of him. Anthropology and the Paranormal. The dean gave up looking. I can't seem to find my copy. Perhaps we can address this at the next... I have a copy for you, Jennifer said, 
and pulled a sheaf of collated and sticky-note annotated forms and printouts from the folder. She made a show of walking down the aisle, up onto the dais, and placing them in front of the dean. He smiled at her, the smile of a toad eyeing a passing fly. Well, like I said, maybe we can discuss it at next quarter's meeting. There is no motion before the chair to consider it at this time. A young woman seated near the rear of the auditorium rose to her feet. I make a motion to consider Dr. Day's course, she said loudly. Everyone turned around to see who had spoken. It was Heather Long, a recently hired adjunct professor. She smiled supportively at Jennifer. Another member of the audience, an older woman, Helen Ibarra, rose to her feet. The whiteness of her hair and the darkness of her skin were a striking contrast. I second the motion, she said. If Dr. Day has a course that would boost enrollment for the department, I say we should hear about it, Robert. The dean took in a deep breath, realizing he wasn't going to get away with just dismissing Jennifer's course out of hand. Very well. A motion to consider is before the chair. All those who support the motion say aye. A loud chorus of ayes issued forth. Opposed, say nay. A much less enthusiastic collection of nays followed. In the opinion of the chair, the vote is in the negative, and the motion to consider is defeated. A murmur of disagreement rumbled through the audience. The dean banged his gavel. It sounded more like a weak doorknock than a resounding call to order. Helen raised her voice above the growing din. I move for a hand count, she said. Her authoritative voice commanded respect, and everyone quieted down. Jennifer smiled. Dr. Abar had always been a supportive mentor both in her anthropology work and her parapsychology investigations. I second the motion, Heather added from the back of the room. The dean looked at the assistant dean and the department secretary. They didn't seem eager to provide him a way out of counting each vote. All those in favor of considering Dr. Day's course, raise your hand, he said reluctantly. More than two-thirds of the attendees raised their hands. The department secretary counted them and wrote the number down. All those opposed the dean said, the arrogance that normally dominated his tone now absent. An obviously lesser number of hands was raised. The secretary counted, put the number next to the other, and handed it to the dean. The dean didn't bother to look at it. The motion passes. The proposal for Dr. Day's course will advance to the curriculum committee. He consulted a sheet of paper. The next meeting is scheduled for December. Jennifer glared at him. Is there anything else, Dr. Day? He asked smugly. Jennifer shook her head and returned to her seat. Once the meeting concluded, she gathered up her things. Dr. Ibarra approached her. Chin up. In case you forgot, I am the chair of the curriculum committee, she told Jennifer. I have a feeling we're going to be meeting well before December, she said with a conspiratorial smile. Thanks, Jennifer said. Honestly, what do you think the chances are? Well, Roberts is definitely capable of putting up obstacles, but I think we'll get it through if not for next semester, soon. Be patient. This is academia, not Silicon Valley. Heather Long approached the two women. So are these department meetings always so exciting? She asked. Heather was a great get for the department. She had studied at Princeton and had already published a few papers on indigenous tribes in Australia. Jennifer knew her in passing, but based on her actions in the meeting, she wanted to get to know her a lot better. Get used to it, Helen said. Science moves, but slowly, slowly, she quoted. Tennyson sure knew what he was talking about, Jennifer added. Can I buy you a coffee, or better yet a drink? She asked. Not me, it's almost my bedtime, 
You two go out and celebrate. Every step forward is a victory. George Bernard Shaw? Heather asked. That one is all Helena Barra, the older professor answered. Thank you for listening to Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review not only this podcast, but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniacs newsletter at bedtimestories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigations Paranormal Mystery Book Series, visit rainyanday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.